Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. Today we're here with Marianne Herdigan, and we're going to be talking about justice for the global poor. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so do you want to start by giving us a bit of a background on your current academic position, what discipline you work in, your career has slid down to the point that you've ended up being on the Reviewer 2 podcast rather than on CNN or something good like that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so my I started out actually as a biologist. I studied biology, ecology specifically as an undergrad and grad student, and then got interested in philosophy of science. And that led me into philosophy of science and philosophy of biology for my PhD. And over the course of my career, I've continued to work kind of at the interface of ethics and philosophy of science. And a lot of my work now is in environmental philosophy with a focus on climate ethics and climate justice. I'm interested in your background in biology because strangely, we don't actually talk to many people in biology. Um, Even though the field of geoengineering encompasses carbon dioxide, notes to those who believe that carbon dioxide removal is an entirely separate subject. Definitionally, not the case, even though carbon removal is usually described as being separate from geoengineering nowadays, the original definition of geoengineering certainly does include carbon dioxide removal. So there's an awful lot of nature-based this and that in the field. But very few people that we've spoken to directly and very few people within my orbit are actually qualified biologists. And I think that that's very interesting because one of the the areas that I think is neglected in academia is a solid grounding of human behaviour in biology. And I'm currently listening to Robert Plowman's book, I can't remember the title of it right now, but uh, he's a prominent uh, geneticist. So it's interesting to speak to somebody who's got the academic background to understand biology and ecology and to potentially not only to human systems, but also to the interface between humanity and nature, which is um, in in a lot of ways, I think, kind of under-scienced, you might want to describe it as that. So people are operating in systems, which they are pontificating on and, and pronounce, making pronouncements about, but are not viewing in a, as robust a scientific fashion as they might be viewing other aspects of their work. So you might get people who are absolutely fantastic climate modelers, but um, don't apply basic biological common sense to human systems, right? Does that, does that ring a bell for you? Or do you, do, you, do you think that biology should be kept well out of politics and psychology and all that kind of stuff? I mean, I would say that I generally strongly favor and appreciate participating in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary approaches to research. So I kind of think that the more perspectives we can and the more forms of expertise and knowledge that we can bring to bear on a subject, the better. I mean, you know, obviously we need to sort of, there's a big universe of knowledge out there. So we need to sort of think about what's relevant to a given question, but Yeah, I mean, I think having multiple perspectives, thinking about how biology and other areas of science and ethics and social science all interface are really helpful in approaching complex problems like climate change. Okay, so do you want to give us a bit of background in terms of your institution and the the nature of the current work you do? Are you making a recent foray into the world of geoengineering or is this the cornerstone of your work and how is it fitting into your funding environment and your work day and all of those aspects we 
we've basically got a bunch of academics and academic propeller heads on the podcast audience as far as I'm aware so they want to understand the academic process as much as they want to understand the actual academic output sure yeah sure I'm not a liberal arts liberal arts school so I actually teach and do have that is in the UK so you might want to give us a bit of an understanding of what liberal arts means so my institution is actually an undergraduate focused institution that emphasizes giving students uh, both specialized knowledge within their particular field of you know their particular major area of study and also focuses on giving students or helping students develop a broad understanding of multiple areas of knowledge and how they connect with one another and how they connect with the world beyond the the so-called ivory tower. So uh, because of that orientation, those of us who are faculty at liberal arts colleges end up often teaching a wide array of courses in our disciplines and also engaging across disciplinary boundaries. So for me, what that looks like is housed in the philosophy department, Colorado College, and I teach courses, philosophy courses ranging from like ethics to epistemology to philosophy of science, environmental ethics. Many of my courses are also in cooperation with the environmental studies program, which I'm also on the faculty of. So I teach like a climate justice class. I teach a course called Techno Natures, which looks at sort of the intersections between humans, nature, technology, and ethics. Yeah, so my my background and my teaching is very interdisciplinary, and I think that also carries over into my research. Most of my research these days is in environmental philosophy, and I got, and specifically with a focus on climate ethics and climate justice, and I've done quite a bit on geoengineering, or sort of thought about geoengineering, solar geoengineering specifically, a lot in recent years, but I got involved, I think about more than a decade ago, with a contribution to an edited volume that Christopher Preston put together. Um, and then I've kind of remained involved in the conversation and have gotten more involved in interdisciplinary efforts to think about the you know research and research governance in relation to solar geoengineering, including serving on a National Academies committee a couple of years ago. Okay, I think that's probably the National Academies Committee that they told me I wasn't good enough for. So I'm going to feel jealous and bitter and give you a hard time as a result of it. So I just want to clarify, I'd like to get a bit more detail on this liberal arts thing. So if I wasn't at a liberal arts college, what would be the difference? How would I know that I'm not at a liberal arts college? Are they are they kind of uglier or more brutal or oh, less yeah. useful or what? I don't I don't think so. I mean, obviously, you know, I've worked at a liberal arts college for you know, a, a while now. And so I, uh, I'm i committed to the value of a liberal arts education, but there are multiple, you know, pathways, and I think different ones are appropriate for different people. So I think the, the key difference here in the U.S. is that there are some universities tend, you know, typically maybe larger research universities that uh, that focus more strongly on specialization within a discipline. So Not all large research universities in the U.S., but some, for example, ask you to declare your major field of study and to start in on that major field of study from the get-go. At liberal arts colleges, typically 
students have more opportunity to explore various fields when they arrive at college. They can obviously arrive wanting to be a biology major or planning to be a physics major or, you know, studio arts major, whatever it is, and they can continue down that path. But the curriculum encourages exploration of multiple fields, including fields that students may not have had exposure to in high school. So most, for example, like most, most high school students don't have the opportunity in the U.S. at least don't have the opportunity to take a philosophy class. So folks who major in philosophy at Colorado College generally encounter, often encounter philosophy, academic philosophy for the first time once they arrive on campus. So it's like the university equivalent of a Montessori school, right? <laughs> Maybe that's one way, one way of putting it. I think, yeah, I mean, I think the key probably, it's a difference in emphasis. And I think liberal arts colleges by sort of valuing breadth also sort of try to temper specialization with, you know, with that breadth and also encourage connections across different areas of knowledge and understanding. Okay. So I'm, I've currently got the idea of your techno natures class coming, rattling around my head. And I'm trying to wonder if that was an album, what would it sound like? Because it, it sounds like a kind of, to me, something a bit like Deep Forest, if they remember that band from the early 90s, sort of a, a fusion of electronic and tribal music. But anyway, that's just my music-related fantasies about all your strange course in techno natures might involve. But if, uh, do you contribute to any MOOCs? If I wanted to look at your techno natures course, could I look you up online and study it, or would I have to enroll in the liberal arts college to do that? <laughs> yeah, I don't actually, I haven't participated in any MOOCs, but I like the idea of a Techno Nature's MOOC. I could certainly share the syllabus with you. That would be probably the best way in at this point. Well, you could just stand in front of the camera and record it and put it up on YouTube, and then you could share your genius with the world. But that's a topic <laughs> for another day. So I think fail so far to let you introduce your paper. So do you want to give me a little uh, spiel, give me the title and where you published it and what kind of a misery it was to get through peer review and stuff like that? Sure, yeah. The paper was called Climate Change, Climate Engineering and the Global Poor, What Does Justice Require? It was published in Ethics, Policy and the Environment, which is a somewhat interdisciplinary journal that tries to think about ethical issues in, uh, in relation to the environment in a, in a policy-relevant context. And the, the paper is really exploring... It's in many ways a response to an argument that asserts that those of us in wealthy countries or, or wealthy countries themselves have an obligation to research solar geoengineering on behalf of the global poor. And so be specific. Well, be specific. What you were doing here was basically throwing eggs at David Kick, wasn't it? That was you him and all of the other pro Keithians. Uh, which is like, I'm going to try and get that into the general literature because Promethean and Prochethean are so grisly <laughs> close in, uh, in the geoengineering uh, field that I think we should all start referring to every geoengineering proponent as a Prochethean. <laughs> but that's, basic, that's basically what you're doing, isn't it? You've been, you've been throwing eggs at David Keith. And I think you, you're, quite, you're quite explicit in the abstract, aren't you, that you are throwing eggs at David Keith. Well, I don't think I mentioned eggs or rotten eggs or throwing anything, actually, but it is a critique 
of an argument that Josh Horton and David, who's actually a CC alum, and David Keith have given, and a sort of a response to that argument that I hope sort of opens up some broader conversations about ethics and geoengineering and and so, these to, related to geoengineering research. I don't want to take your paper in a vacuum. So, do you want to summarize in a couple of sentences the Prokethian's school of thought about? Um, the ethics questions that you're referring to and then give us a couple of sentences on how you think that they're horribly wrong and should be shunned and thrown out of uh, the city gates and never let back in again. <laughs> I don't think I argue for banishment either, uh, but... I don't hold back. I mean, it's far more interesting if you do. <laughs> but, I mean, I think there's a general presumption about scientific research that sort of more research is always better. And, you know, generally speaking, it's good to have, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to the idea that it's good to have more knowledge rather than less. But there are also big questions about what kinds of knowledge uh, we should pursue and how to pursue it. And this paper, so Josh Horton and David Keith have been, well, David Keith, if we're going to focus on David Keith, has been a, a very strong proponent for research on solar geoengineering and I think has expressed and, and has, has acknowledged, you know, challenging ethical issues associated with solar geoengineering, but has been a strong proponent for uh, increased research in this area, including outdoor experiments. This paper, Keith and Horton paper that I'm responding to, uh, isn't specifically about or experiments, but is making the argument that wealthy countries basically have an obligation to advance solar geoengineering as a way of benefiting the global poor. Um, and that's, that's, that's a very Victorian argument. So, I mean, I, I don't want to kind of throw the baby out of the bathwater when it comes to colonialism, because I, I definitely think that the anti-colonialism pendulum has swung too far. But the, the views that they're espousing there are typically quite colonialist views, aren't they? That you, you have these uh, centres in the global north and the global west, which are uh, in, in intellectually dominant, and and they have a, a moral obligation to further the products of industry and science, and then bring these to the unenlightened tribes. Now, I'm you know that's not my language. I'm just using the kind of language which would have been familiar to the Victorian colonialists, right? And I think the idea that you can write off an entire movement as being completely amoral and everybody involved in colonialism was completely evil, but that's absurd in my view. But the, the point I'm making is that the arguments that they're arguing are kind of quintessentially colonial. You have these, um, that, you know, they're part of a knowledge centre. They think knowledge centre has a contribution to make to the world and they are making their contribution in an honest and earnest fashion by doing as much research as they can and they're making it available to the the benefit of mankind, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some significant analogies between, yeah, kind of colonial thinking and that sort of argument that we need, that we in wealthy countries should be doing research solar geoengineering technologies in order to sort of save, save the, the poor in the global south. So yeah, I mean, the paper is, uh, my paper is, makes an effort to kind of unpack some of the assumptions that are built into Horton and Keith's argument 
and to try to broaden the lens a little bit to think about uh, the ways to both consider how some of those assumptions are kind of narrow and limiting, and also to think about how it might be possible to approach thinking about and engaging in conversations about solar geoengineering research in a way that was more more inclusive and makes space for agency of the the sort of so-called, you know, large category of the global poor that Keith Horton and Keith refer to? Well, I think it's worth exploring a couple of counter-arguments. So there are several that I can briefly summarise that you might want to unpack and go into more detail about. Uh, the first one is the slippery slope, uh, which is in, in common conception is referred to as the slippery slope fallacy. For some reason, seems to have been elevated to the status of an argument in this field. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, one wag, who I've often liked to quote and pretend that it's my genius saying this, they, they say the slope's slippery, but it goes the other way. So you've got to climb up the slippery slope, not down the slippery slope. And as somebody who spent not an inconsiderable amount of their working life trying to bring technologies to fruition, I can confirm that is in fact the case. It's far more dead technologies than there are technologies that have gone through the difficult birthing process. And so those looking back, studying science and technology in society through a lens of history tend to suffer from a quite a bad case of survivor bias and only look at things that have made it rather than looking at all the dead technologies that no one ever bothered even writing down because they just didn't work, right? But there's also uh, concepts of opposition to research that come from um, other approaches. So, for example, C2G, an organisation that is apparently in its final year of it today. I think they're trying to do their farewell tour at the moment. And uh, one of uh, their pieces of media they've been pushing recently is uh, interviews with Sami people who managed to scupper the Scopex experiment, which is, you know, coincidentally David Keith, but it, the link to the paper isn't a given uh, because they viewed it as being what you might call morally offensive. So, you know, they had a fundamental objection to the research because they viewed the technology as being fundamentally dis disagreeable in the same way that, you know, you might say, well, you know, knowledge is a good thing, but more knowledge about how to effectively murder babies is probably not a very good thing, right? You know, we don't need to have research institutions dedicated to stabbing babies in the most effective fashion because the whole idea of murdering babies is morally repugnant and therefore we don't want to further our knowledge about murdering babies, even though knowledge in most other cases, is a good thing, right? Alan Roebock about research saying that research and, and deployment are indistinguishable. Now, Alan does his own research, so he's not he's certainly not opposed in principle to all kinds of research, but he's, there are types of research which he has argued in the past are indistinguishable from deployment, and therefore you might choose to oppose research because it is too close to, to deployment in terms of its implementation. And you can look at the recent... Uh, too hard about Mate Sunsets, who we've interviewed on this podcast quite recently, where what they're doing is kind of a messy hybrid between research and deployment, because what they're doing is very, very small scale, but because they've commercialised it, it looks very much like deployment, even though it certainly is too small to influence survivor. So you might want to add in a few more examples of different approaches to arguing this point that would stand against research, uh, but you might also want to unpack the ideas that I've just given you a very brief proceed of there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the goal of the paper is not to 
argue against solar geoengineering research per se, the goal of my paper. The goal of my paper is to say that, um, to put it, I guess, fairly bluntly, that Horton and Keith haven't given a compelling argument for geoengineering research and that their argument rests on a lot of problematic assumptions. So what I have a what I'm worried about is this idea that they they argue that there we have an ob, we who are in wealthy countries have an obligation to do solar geoengineering research in order to benefit the so-called global the, you know the quote unquote global poor. Uh, and well, there's two there's two ways you can look at that. I want to try and unpack which of these two things that you think is their argument. So one argument would be that it, it's you can take it i try to remember who said this it might be gandhi who said from uh, each according to his abilities to each according to his needs or that might be marx i'm not sure who said that uh, the, but the idea being that because the west is in a position to do this research and other advantaged populations are then it falls upon the west it's like you know if, if, a, if a child falls out of a skyscraper you don't worry necessarily about the ethics of whose responsibility it is to catch the child, just catch them because you're underneath, right? Uh, and then you've got the other argument, which has been advanced by a guy whose name I can't remember. If I ever knew how to pronounce it, I've forgotten, but I think it's Olway Taheo or something like that. Uh, and he looks at climate engineering as a reparations argument. So the idea being that the West has done a great harm to the global poor by advancing fossil fuel use and you know, people like, for example, in countries like Pakistan, where they have disproportionately low fossil fuel use, are at the moment facing disproportionately high harms from fossil fuel use. Yeah. So those are two quite separate arguments. Which do you see as being the the mainstay of how the Prokethians have argued for solar geoengineering research? Well, I think, I mean, if you if you think broadly. Uh... Prokethians, if you want to call them that, have made multiple arguments as to why geoengineering research should be done. My my and in, in the paper that I'm responding to, I think they make one specific argument that like we should be engaged. We in wealthy countries should do solar geoengineering research because that is the best way to alleviate near-term harms to poor people around the world. So that's well. That's I mean that's a the way you're stating that. That to me immediately raises the hairs on my back of my neck because that doesn't seem to be credible for two reasons. I mean, like firstly, it's very difficult to be sure that that's you know you're not comparing it against an infinite design space of other possible solutions. You're just comparing it to you know a a set of ideas that you might have in your own mind about uh, the. Uh, the possible alternatives, right? And I know that from understanding David Keith's work and arguments in the past, I don't think he's been really arguing for near-term deployment in any way, right? So it surprises me that he views this as being an immediately effective way of addressing the problem and harms of climate change. My understanding of how he sees this is that it's a solution which we should research for possible use in, say, 20 to 30 years, which is very different from something being immediately effective in terms of uh, addressing near-term harms. Yeah. So if you've got things like, for example, 
Pakistanis drowning in floodwaters because the Himalayas have melted. Now, solar geoengineering may, in theory, be useful for addressing issues like that, but these people are dying, not necessarily at the moment, so as far as I'm aware, there's not major flooding in Pakistan today, but there certainly has been in recent months, and it, and it was pretty devastating. And there's a very, very large number of people that are profoundly affected by that flooding. And that I keep raising this example on the podcast, because to me, it seems one of the most um, clear-cut examples of a climate injustice where you've got a very large population. So there's a lot of people affected. They're affected very profoundly by the floods. And there's a very clear link to climate change. And you can roll that argument forward in terms of saying, well, because we know that there's a big climate impact on that, because we know there are a lot of people who are harmed, then it makes a lot of sense for us to look at reducing these harms in future or having the potential to reduce these harms in future by researching solar geoengineering. So yeah. like, that that that's how I see the Prakithian argument um, in this yeah. field. But you're stating it a lot more um, with a lot more urgency than I've ever heard David state it directly. Is it possible, perhaps, that there's a degree of you know misinterpretation or hyperbole, or do I just have I been just too lazy and I haven't read his recent work? I mean, it'll be interesting to you know to him about this because I think you're right that when David Keith talks about solar geoengineering in most contexts. He talks about the value of doing research and, but the importance of kind of gain, not, not rushing into deployment and trying to understand the complexities and the risks before, you know, and, and gathering more information. So the funny thing is, is that in this paper that he wrote with Josh Horton, there's this you know, I think they start from a principle that basically you've made reference to in our conversation, this this idea that given that wealthy countries have contributed massively and continue to contribute a lot to climate change, and that that is resulting in significant burdens and harms to people in less wealthy countries who have contributed very little to climate change, there's an obligation of wealthy nations like the United States to do something like to alleviate climate harms. I think there's a lot of consensus. Well, well, let let me just address that if I may. So um, you're you're basically saying it's a reparations-based argument. It's not based on capabilities. It's based on reparations, which is a helpful clarification. But another argument could be that these reparations could just take the form of straight payment of damages. You know, people get climate and ecosystem services generally. You might want to lean on the, your, your, your experience in this is likely to be instructive because you've got experience in both the philosophy of science and in biology so in terms of understanding the concepts of uh, the ethical obligation of restoration for a loss of ecosystem services it would seem to be right in your wheelhouse right i mean maybe we get yeah. you to marry up with an economist and, and give a comment on that but it's silent engineering because it's relatively inexpensive and particularly because research is relatively inexpensive it seems almost like a get out of jail free card in one regard, because you can say if you're uh, taking these um, pro solar geoengineering arguments, then a critic might say, well, you know, the, the hard yards is to give multi trillion dollar transfers to the developing world because they're faced in generations of exploitation by using the at- atmosphere as a dustbin. Any other environmental harms that have been inflicted on them, such as, for example, forcing countries that have had um, loans 
foisted upon them by being uh, funding given to their autocratic governments. And then the descendants, the people who weren't even asked whether they wanted that particular autocrat, much less to ask whether they wanted his policies, their grandchildren, the people who were around in the period when the autocrat was around, are then being forced to mine and log their way through their country's natural resources to pay for the palaces and wars and follies of long-dead autocrats, right? You know, I, I don't want to come across like sounding like a 1970s development communist or anything like that, because it's not really where my politics lies at all. But I don't, I don't think, I think those arguments bear some scrutiny, and I don't think they can be readily discarded. And I think that one of the challenges of advocating some of the geoengineering is being this kind of utilitarian, most efficient solution means that you're kind of um, abdicating the responsibilities right. of a society. If you could, if you could take the view that David Keith is fronting the Western world in terms of geoengineering by making that argument, it's kind of letting us off the hook, isn't it? Because what we perhaps should be doing is saying to Pakistan, well, you know, we'll pay you five hundred billion dollars a year to improve your climate resilience and give yeah. your citizens air conditioning and all of the other things that you might need. To deal with the fact that you've been rather messed about by our fondness for right. indulging think, a fossil fuel habit, right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, I mean, some levels sort of building on what you're saying, like the core intuition that I'm suggesting, you know, or advancing here is like, maybe, maybe it would be worth asking Pakistan, what, or, you know, or Bangladesh, or, you know, whatever country we're talking about, what do you need? <laughs> like, we recognize that, you know, our actions have caused, you know, cumulative, our cumulative actions over history and our, you know, continued actions with respect to greenhouse gas emissions are burdening you. How can we help? Right. But I think. Well, what- that's, an, that's, that's one way of doing it. I mean, let's take a more extreme example. Pakistan is a, you know, in its own way, it's quite a capable nation. It's a nuclear armed state. It's very large. Sure. It's got you know, better part of a billion people. But you can take other examples of states that have much less capacity, such as, you know, Gabon and places like that, you know, they're much smaller, much poorer, you know, just, just generally less capable as a state than Pakistan. And, and you could say, well, look, if, if we were going to talk to the citizens of Gabon, you know, would they really have much of value to say about what they might think they need in terms of climate support? Because, you know, they don't necessarily have a great deal of expertise. Now, I'm not, you know, on a mission to kind of be particularly critical of people in Gabon, and maybe they do have a lot of expertise, but it's a more general point than that. So, you know, please don't write in um, complaining about how nasty I'm being people from Gabon because I'm not trying to be. What I'm saying is that not every state has capacity to judge what's in its own best interests. And that's, you know, that is a colonialist argument. And I think it can be proudly and boldly made. I don't think you should be ashamed of saying that often people don't know what's best for them. And that's why we have doctors and things like that, right? I mean, obviously, People in Gabon have got doctors as well. But the point I'm making is that it may be that Western institutions are far better placed to understand what investments need to be made in um, for climate resilience or for public health and climate affected nations than are the academics or politicians within those nations, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think this is where I guess I want to push back a little bit. I totally agree with you that um, there is differential capacity of various kinds. In, in different nations and that, you know, a country like where I live in the US, like we have a lot of 
a lot of wealth, a lot of scientific research capacity, a lot of technological capacity, like, you know, and that is a lot of power <laughs> to influence how global politics and global negotiations proceed. So I totally, you're making an important point about differences in capacity, but I guess I'm a little nervous about the move from that point to a kind of paternalistic argument that therefore, you know, the U.S. should decide what's good for climate vulnerable countries without input from people from those countries themselves. And I think, I mean, that's really at the heart of where I'm objecting to Horton Keith. Like they make an argument in the paper, you know, they consider, okay, if there's an obligation to, uh, for wealthy countries to help the global poor, what should that obligation look like? And they say, and they're specifically focused on sort of helping alleviate near-term climate harms. They say, well, mitigation is too slow to alleviate near-term climate harms. So that's not a good solution. Adaptation, they suggest, is like relatively more expensive than solar geoengineering. And the benefits of adaptation are primarily local. So since it's it's sort of, you know, both local and expensive, we should sort of set that aside as compared to investments in solar geoengineering research. Which has well, just to just to step in on that mitigation is too hard argue. I mean, like David Keith, I think is nationally Canadian and works in the U.S. research institution. And if you compare like the quality of life of people that live in Canada and America to the quality of life of people that live in, say, Sweden or the Netherlands, right? Then you know there are aspects of American life that you might argue are better, but Generally speaking, I think most people would view those countries as being on a global spectrum, broadly equivalent. You know, they're, they're all democracies internally at peace. They've got relatively stable governments. They have material sufficiency for their populations, but they've got vastly different amounts of climate um, impact. And it seems a bit rich for people to make an argument that mitigation is so very, very difficult when they're making an argument from a North American perspective, which has got an astonishingly profligate approach to um, to consumption of fossil fuels. I mean, like, just look at the cars people drive in America. You, you can you can you can do your journey in a Honda Civic. You don't need a Dodge Ram to do it, right? If you're just traveling around, I mean, I know those are those are fighting words in the U.S. You can't say that. <laughs> Well, it's kind of absurd, really. I mean, like, I get it. I understand if people need to sort of drag a wood chipper around or something like that, you can't do that in a Honda Civic. But, you know, most of the people that drive Dodge Rams and Ford F-150 pickups, they don't use them for carrying wood chippers around or, you know, the carcass of a steer or whatever else appears in the adverts about why you need a F-150 truck to go and take your kids to school, right? Um, So it's... It does seem a bit perverse, really, that people in the most climate profligate nations are raising the argument it's just so very hard to do mitigation. When there's, it's not like the people who, I mean, you could take a country like, for example, like um, Uruguay, which has got a lot lower GDP, a lot lower development index than somewhere like America. You could say, well, you know, it's not in abject material poverty. It's a relatively civilized place, right? 
and say, well, you know, Native Americans wouldn't necessarily want to be like Uruguayans, but it's kind of hard asked to say, well, they couldn't live like Swedes, or they couldn't live like the Danish, or they couldn't live like the Dutch. Um, so I'm not really that persuaded by this mitigation is so very hard. If you just stop being so ridiculously profligate, that'll be quite a long way to solving the problem. I, w- I wanted to, to segue in because you're sort of nudging up against and not acknowledging a really important part of your paper. And the reason I wanted to get you to talk about this bit is because I'm, I'm doing a paper at the moment, or have li- literally just filed a paper a few days ago, reviewing two does do some work of his own, you might care to note. And we're looking at legitimacy. And legitimacy, your, your paper looks at justice. And legitimacy is something which, to my annoyance, I discovered after starting to write a paper about it, there's about 111 different concepts of legitimacy which overlap in this kind of sprawling, orgiastic mess that means it's almost impossible to pick apart what is exclusively in one bit of legitimacy and not in another. Um, you're, you're looking at justice, which is a, a not a not wholly unrelated concept to legitimacy, appears to be a similarly sprawling mess. Uh, yeah. So you, you've made reference to a few specific conceptions of justice. And I think by implication, you're pointing out that the Keith paper and by extension, the Keith School uh, of Thought and Geoengineering has overlooked this, some of these concepts of justice. So do you want to give us a, a quick sort of helter-skelter through the world of justice uh, and help us understand, you know, maybe not every one of the 873 potential conceptions of justice that's ever been written about, but maybe give us a kind of five or six ones that are seen as being most helpful in terms of dividing the field into useful subcategories, right? Yeah. I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to try and keep it simple and focus on on sort of three dimensions of justice. I mean, the Horton and Keith paper focuses on distributive justice and specifically the distribution of climate-related harms. And the idea is that doing research on, their idea is that doing research on climate geoengineering has the potential to presumably develop geoengineering technologies that could reduce distributive injustice by reducing near-term climate harms for well the- i think i think you're you're potentially assuming that i and perhaps some of our listeners are cleverer than they really are so i wonder if i'd ask you to take a step back so when i'm thinking about justice i think most people's conception of justice starts off with the idea of the courtroom right and there are two fundamental ideas of justice that encapsulate in the courtroom. One is procedural justice in that you get a fair hearing, as in the, the rules are followed, and it's not just like the judge doesn't turn up drunk and just decide to make a completely arbitrary ruling. But there's a second conception of justice, which I'm not really able to name, which is the rules themselves are fair. So, for example, you know you don't automatically get a longer sentence because you're African-American than you would do if you were a, a Caucasian person. Now, people might argue that you know, in very real terms, people do get longer sentences because of their uh, ethnic origin. Well, that's a separate conversation. What I'm trying to get to address is how the different concepts of justice might apply in everyday life. We start getting all smart-assed and trying to apply them to a particularly esoteric field of academic study, which is geoengineering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, so you're right that there are many different ways to divide up justice or to think about it. And you you just mentioned sort of two two dimensions. So, I mean, 
the distinction you described is basically a distinction between procedural justice, like how how procedures go forward and and whether, you know, each person gets a, a fair hearing and that kind of thing, and that the rules are followed, and substantive justice, which is justice in relation to sort of outcomes, and is often, I mean, I think one important uh, piece of substantive justice has to do with distributive justice, which is what I was just talking about. And I think there's another. So, what is distributive justice? And I'm like, going to tell you. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well, I, I kind of view distributive justice as which monkey gets the biscuits, right? So, you have yeah. lots of experiments done on whether you give like a chimpanzee three biscuits, then you give another chimpanzee two biscuits. Does the one that only got two biscuits kick off about this? And exactly. humans are just slightly, slightly yeah. more complicated chimpanzees, if I view, right. right? So that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So who gets what? I mean, is sort of distributive justice and what would be fair? So you use the, you know, that sort of interesting experimental work on on chimpanzees about their sense of fairness. But you could also think in the paper I talk about, like, dividing up a pie, right? Like, what's a fair way to divide up a pie? You could say, like, you know, everybody gets an equal share of the pie or that people who need more of the pie because they're hungrier should get a big piece. So there are different theories of distributive justice, right? And there are actually lots of complexities within distributive justice because there are different things that could be divided up, right? So for Horton and Keith, they're focused on how we divide up climate-related burdens. But there might be other, you know, other things that we should be worried about distributing as well. Uh, but distributive justice—that's well, that's why it comes. That's why it comes to my argument. So, I'm talking about um, distribution of climate-related burdens, but there's a there's an underpinning of that where it's not just about what people might need or want, but or what people might be able to contribute and thus have a right to expect back. But the, you've got this reparations argument, which is thematically underpinning the whole thing, and that there wouldn't be a climate problem for the Pakistanis if it wasn't for Americans driving around in F-150 trucks. Now, obviously, you know, there's more to the climate problem than that, but you know, just, just trying to work out what's distributively fair without looking at the procedural fairness of it, as in who caused the problem in the first place, doesn't seem to be, to me, uh, a fulsome consideration of the justice argument, right? That's right. I think, you know, and that's one of my points in the paper is that it's kind of problematic to make assumptions about how distributive justice should work and what should be done about it without having a broader conversation about uh, the kinds of issues that you're raising, right? So, you know, people like you know, I might come along and say, okay, everybody does, you know, everybody in the world, you know, deserves and sort of, or every country in the world, you know, on a per capita basis deserves an equal share of the sort of remaining CO2 emissions allowable to stay under 2C. Okay. Well, okay, but do they? Well, let, let's imagine, let's imagine, right? We live together, husband and wife, right? And I, you, you come home expecting there to be a pie in the oven. Right. And you find a quarter of the pie remaining in the oven and me covered in pie, looking rather fat and satisfied with myself. Right. And then you say, can I have some pie? And then I say, yeah, sure. You can have half the remaining pie exactly. in the oven. You can have an eighth of a pie. 
Exactly. What's what's wrong with that? You're getting a half, you're getting a full half of the of the share of the pie. What are you possibly complaining about? Exactly. Exactly. And so we might have an argument over that, right? Like we might disagree about what would be fair. My worry is that I'm I guess putting it positively, I think we need to have space to have that argument. So I don't think it's okay, if, you know, I don't think that you know, a small number of people in the global north who have a lot of power should make decisions about, you know, I don't think that, or you as my spouse, right? Yet, I don't think it would be fair for you to just say like, it's settled. Like, obviously we should just split the remaining pie, right? So I might say like, look, like you already ate three quarters of the pie, right? <laughs> like, like we need to have a conversation about what happened before. And so I think with respect to, you know, geoengineering research, that conversation needs to happen, right? So I don't think that um, it's a great idea to sort of make assumptions about what would be distributively just without having broader conversations about different people's conceptions of justice and their reasons for having those conceptions. So that really, I mean, we were talking about these different ways of thinking about justice. There's the distributive justice, and obviously they're different ways of thinking about distributive justice, as we've just seen. Then there's also, you know, participatory justice, like do people have the opportunity to participate in decisions that affect them with respect to geoengineering, like everyone in the world would be affected. So, so, you know, there should be ways in my view to create a broad space for global participation and conversations. And so then, isn't, yeah. isn't participatory justice subset of procedural justice or, or yeah. is it something that's distinct from procedural justice? Fair, yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. Yeah, that it's one element okay. of procedural justice. Like procedural justice might also be like, if you have procedures laid out, people follow those procedures. Like when, I don't know, you know, when a court case is tried, you know, both sides have the opportunity to... To present their case, and they have equal time, or something like that, right? Uh, so, so I'm trying to dis I'm trying to understand the difference between a concept you haven't mentioned, which is representative or representational justice and uh, participatory justice. So, as far as I understand, representational justice is kind of like you might call the identity politics version of, ju of justice. So, you kind of split the world up into demographic groups and then say well everyone's got to have a, a they've got to participate or have representation according to whichever particular subdivision of the identity politics landscape they have to occupy but you're saying that's the equivalent of participatory justice or are you saying that representational justice is is fundamentally different from that and there's quite a clear distinction between the two yeah so i mean i think you're talking about what i call in the paper recognition uh, yeah, that's uh, sorry, it's recognitional justice, isn't it? Yeah. Not representational justice. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I think. Rec okay. Can you describe that? Can you describe recognition? It's a complex concept, but like, I think the core idea of recognition is has sort of involves respect. So, res sort of, and respect itself has, I've argued, has kind of two dimensions where like we respect sort of the equal moral standing of each person but also respect for difference so respect that your views on distributive justice might be different from mine but that doesn't mean that you know 
your views don't deserve to be heard. Okay. So I think where can, this- can you give me an example of a, of a system or situation where recognition or justice either kind of explicitly is or explicitly isn't present? I have trouble. I mean, the distributive justice thing I find quite easy to explain to third parties, but I don't really find it easy to explain recognition of justice, which probably means I don't really understand it very much. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, one place this comes up is in, I think one reason that you're thinking like, is this the same as, or is this different from participatory justice is because they're they're often entangled in, in various ways. So I'm going to give you an example of how this might play out in why recognition, let me put it this way, why recognition is an important concept that supplements or adds to participatory justice. And I mean, I think sometimes when people think about participatory justice, they think, okay, like as long as everyone has has a, an opportunity to participate, like we're good, right? So, uh, you know, in the let US- me just let me give you an example of where I think you might um, where I think you might be able to usefully draw a distinction. So, for example, you might have like a consultation process on, say, a road that goes to demolish a neighbourhood, right? And so the council come along and they say, we're going to demolish your neighborhood and we're going to have a a consultation about what color the bollards are on the road. And then you turn up and you say, well, I don't really care what the bollards are going to be like because you're going to knock my house down. I'm going to have to move somewhere else. So you can stuff your bollards and they might say, well, that, you know, we don't recognize, you know, we're not going to recognize those arguments within this procedure here you know we've got a procedurally just process we're keeping an open mind as to what color the bollards are and and we've also got participatory justice because we're allowing you to come we're allowing anyone to come and and express their opinion about the bollards we don't recognize your beliefs about whether a road should or shouldn't be driven through your neighborhood because we our frame of reference is that roads driven through neighborhoods are an inherently good and worthy thing and we're not going to get ourselves sidetracked about the on the important matters of bollard color decision just because you happen not to be enlightened enough to realize that having your house knocked down by a road to build a road is a good and worthy thing for which you should be grateful and that that would seem to me to be a distinction in recognitional justice right that's exactly right that's exactly right right so when you have a process like the one you described that sort of creates an a certain narrow frame you know for people's opportunities to participate then that may box out the you know their opportunity to share the concerns that are most significant to them right so that in a rather in a rather comic fashion i've just passed a piece of uh, graffiti signage a physical sign not a painted one that someone's put up by the road saying walk a mile in my shoes and i just thought i'd mention that because uh, that's kind of the the whole process behind recognitional justice isn't it it's it's allowing it's valuing people not only people's expression of arguments within another person's framework but valuing their arguments as they might wish to make them and the value system that they bring as well as the arguments within a third party value system that they make to advance their position right do i understand that that's exactly right yeah and so i mean i think okay if we want to connect this to you know the, the paper and arguments about solar geoengineering i think like you know well let me give you an example so 
the the scopex attempts to launch a balloon over the sami people i mean we we did make a brief reference to this earlier yes. saying that the sami had a, a fundamental ideological problem with this and you might in your conceptions of justice consider the uh, what might be arguably riding roughshod over the sami's viewpoint on uh, the worthiness of the whole so the geoengineering escapade in its entirety um, as being a lack of recognition or justice because they might feel or argue that their worldview isn't being respected. Now, there are other ways that you could look to overrule the Sami. You could say, for example, that, you know, no matter how seriously you take their concerns, there just aren't enough of them for anyone to bother with because you've got 7 billion people to worry about and there's only about 50,000 Sami or whatever. And so why would anyone particularly weight their views? Now, there are other issues of justice in terms of the experiments are being done on lands which are essentially sami lands uh, even though they don't own them in a conventional way that westerners might be familiar with them with picket fences and cars parked on the drive you know they drive their herds of reindeer through them and don't necessarily have settled ways of living within the, the geographical boundaries but it's interesting i think to when you touch on the concept of recognitional justice to to look at how a, a real situation in the field of geoengineering has been affected by the two different ideas of um, recognitional justice. One where one person is concerned about recognising the needs and voices of people who are poor and excluded and directly affected by climate change and other people who are taking a more indirect approach and they're, they're, they're thinking on behalf of themselves, not on behalf of a third party community but they're thinking about whether their moral framework is offended or violated by a set of actions rather than looking at the direct impacts. I mean, what you're describing there is, is a recognition issue because you've got two very different worldviews, very different conceptions of what constitutes justice that are colliding. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, like, that's a great example because uh, I think, and it, I think actually illustrates a bigger point, which is, which cuts across not just the the Scopex that particular Scopex case, but like the spice experiment uh, encountered some of the same in the UK. Encountered well, the, the spice experiment was quite different, really, because you didn't have that sort of class, clash of cultures or ethnicities. I mean, you had but, yeah white, white British people spraying water over another load of white British people. Yeah, no, it wasn't an obviously. That's true. And that's true. And I think recognition, you know, your example sort of brings out uh, the kind of need to make space for multiple worldviews as part of recognitional justice. But I think even in sort of within, you know, I don't know if you want to sort of take your characterization of, you know, what's going on with Spice. I mean, like, you know, even in that case where you you might argue that you're dealing perhaps, I mean, I don't know perhaps with a, you know, more homogeneous community. I'm a little hesitant to make generalizations about British people, but, uh, you know. Well, hold on a minute. There's an important distinction. So the Sami are a lot more homogeneous than the British people are, right? British, Britain has been, in many ways, at kind of forefront of ethnic integration for centuries in terms yeah. of having, like, diverse people. Because we've always been a port and airport nation. That's um, and that's... Yeah, four hundred uh, years ago, we've had people from different ethnicities, and much more so than you would get in Sami communities. But I think where you've got, um, you don't have this um, kind of cultural dyad where you have the North American culture coming in and potentially, if you view it in this way, 
imposing on the Sami culture. You've got a much more homogeneous situation where white where British people are doing something to other British people, right? So I, I'm, I'm not saying that that's relevant, but I'm just sure. drawing that distinction in case it is relevant, right? Yeah, I guess, yeah. So I mean, we don't probably have to go into more detail about those particular distinctions, but I mean, I think one of the things that across the two, you know, the SPICE experiment and the most recent sort of Scopex issue is that that in both cases, people who are raising concerns and raising objections we're not concerned only with the physical impacts of that particular experiment. And I think what, you know, I've heard some, not all, but like some scientists who are working on geoengineering say is like, there shouldn't be any special regulation for outdoor exper- the kinds of outdoor experiments we're proposing because the, the environmental impacts, the potential human health impacts, they're no more significant than like, than is the case for a gajillion other research studies. So why pick on us, right? Well, I like get. I understand there's a kind of certain ignorance amongst hard scientists in many cases where people just don't really understand why people don't like what they do. The other, the, the counterpoint to that is that the the arguments are often advanced in quite a bad faith capacity, in my view. So you get people saying, "Oh, we can't possibly do any research on solid geoengineering because it's not the perfect solution," and I happen to view X as the perfect solution. And because solar geoengineering is not X, therefore it should not be as advanced. Now, that just, in my view, doesn't stack up. And it's not how we address, you know, there's not only one tool that we use to address heart disease. You know, you don't say, well, look, because we are, uh, you know, because heart disease is made worse by eating too many pies, we're therefore not going to fund cardiology departments. We're not going to research cardiology because all you're doing is undermining the systemic injustices of, pie eating where people live in communities where they eat only pies and until we've provided salad for everybody we're not going to fund cardiologists now i'm picking an example which is so obviously absurd because i'm trying to illustrate the point i think a lot of the people who make these very kind of dogmatic and principled arguments against solar geoengineering fall into much the same trap of letting the perfect be the enemy of the good i mean just because you know, there's a lot of things in the world that we would rather we didn't have to have, like door locks and firemen and things like that. But um, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't we shouldn't defund the fire service because the better solution is smoke alarms. People sure. reasonably recognise that you can have both, right? And yeah. my concern is in solar geoengineering that a lot of the time people almost deliberately undermine this new nuance because they. I mean, I think a lot of it is posturing. They want to be seen as being you know, it's, it's, it's kind of moral willy-waving, right? But also there's an element of it being quite Machiavellian and trying to undermine the progress of the what they might see as being the other team. So they're virtually signaling to their own team, but also deliberately and consciously undermining the other team, even though they might not be saying as much. And do you not do you not recognise that this kind of bad faith behaviour does happen? Or oh, do I do recognise no, I, I do. I do recognise that people don't always act in good faith. I guess my, my point is that if we're thinking about recognitional justice, then it's, I think it's not enough to sort of pound one's fist and say, physical, you know, I'm a scientist, physical impacts are all that matter. And if you care about something else, then, you know, like you, you shouldn't care about, right? So, I mean, I think. Well, hang on, I think before we go caricature people who aren't there to defend themselves too badly, I think it's important to recognize the salties that are. Because it isn't really how you're portraying it there, in my view, right? So 
what 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 I think people are saying is not so much as you know why why are you recognising philosophical arguments you've got no right to recognise them. What they're saying is that there are so many examples of behaviours that are tolerated despite both physical and philosophical arguments against them. So, for example, driving in an F-150 pickup truck when you could just as easily make your journey on a motor, right? You could view that as being a very morally offensive action because not only are you, you know, you're, 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 you're disadvantaging somebody profoundly in a direct way because you're damaging the atmosphere or, you know, even more directly damaging the lung health of people living on your street to conduct an action, which not only has a direct effect, but also has an indirect effect in that elevates your power and, and undermines theirs. Uh, it's got all of the philosophical impacts of, or many of the philosophical impacts of, and it, like, let's say the equivalent might be building an F-150 Lightning in your, an F-150 truck in your garage that you never drove. People might say, well, you know, we don't want you building this truck because you might drive it around and harm people. But in my view, driving that truck encompasses all of the alleged immorality of making the truck in the first place and worsens that because you're actually creating the harm that you that was previously only a postulate, right? So the solar geoengineering argument sort of has to be a step back, in my view, from that because you're not actually invoking the harm by, by doing this the experimentation because you're only ever creating the potential for the heart because you're not actually doing it, right? Not actually, I actually don't want to argue, like, I'm not trying to argue there should be no experiments or like make, take a substantive position on that. All I'm saying is that from the point of recognition in discussions about whether and how, and I think the how is equally important, not just the weather. And we sometimes get fixate, fixated on, should we do solar geoengineering research? Should we not? Like, should we do outdoor experiments? Should we not? I mean, I think least as important is the question of how should research be approached? Or if there are going to be outdoor experiments, how should they be approached? And as part of that conversation, recognition, like, ideally makes space for good faith expressions of people's sincerely held values in relation to, you know, ethical uh, considerations. Uh, and, and, and well, well, let me give let me give an example of where, I, where I, a very sort of tangible idea of the hypocrisy. So you might find somebody uh, turning up to a planning meeting to object to a factory being built on in their neighbourhood and going on about how dreadful it is that the air pollution from the factory will affect them and their and their neighbourhood. Well, then ducking out for a smoke break, right? Or, or worse, still having a cigarette in the room where other people are around them. So I think a lot of the concern that the scientists have on these kind of issues is not necessarily uh, the rejection outright of the argument that's being raised. It's more an objection to the double standards and the hypocrisy which can often accompany that, right? Because the frustration, I mean, I, I've, somebody who's been in this field for quite some time now, you know, I recognise that, that the value that people bring to this field is, is predicated on the freedom to be able to conduct experimentation, mm -hmm. uh, be that in silico or in the outdoor world but if that is curtailed and fettered by people who wouldn't object to something which is more directly and immediately harmful it just seems foolish and particularly in some cases where the people who are the objectors might actually be carrying you know conducting those you know causing those very harms that they are objecting to as a matter of principle right. by doing things that they do so you know i want to think i don't want to come across as being too preachy about this but 
it does kind of boil my piss a bit when I hear climate scientists go on holiday the other side of the world. You know, I, I particularly bear in mind if they themselves are the more preachy ones and telling other people what they should and shouldn't research, it is kind of annoying to see people living living a lifestyle where they are you know, guilty of in causing far more direct harms than would ever be done by small-scale or micro-scale geoengineering experiments, and, and yet they are quite happy to tell other people what they should and shouldn't do in terms of this kind of research, right? Do, do you not, do you not recognise that that underpins a lot of the objection to the to the kind of behaviour that you're talking about? That it's it, the concern is about the, the double standards and the bad faith and the hypocrisy that people dislike, yeah. rather than necessarily saying that your argument is as a whole invalid and we right. need not regard it, right? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different things going on, and I and I actually want to say that many scientists that I've interacted with in this field are actually very broad-minded. And so they're not pounding their fist on the table and saying, like, I don't care about what you think. I'm just I'm just saying from the perspective of recognitional justice, that's something, a scenario that should be avoided. And sometimes there's been a focus primarily on physical impacts that uh, doesn't provide space for consideration of other impacts. But I absolutely hear what you're saying, that I think on every side of this polarized issue, there are people who are genuinely trying to express, you know, their views and have a conversation. And then there are people who have a very sort of strong, have very strong positions and are using, like, are thinking about, like, how do I, you know, use political power to advance my perspective or to advance our perspective or whatever. So, that's a challenge, I think, in setting up forums where, you know, where conversations can happen without sort of devolving into this kind of politicized, you know, discourse where people are just trying to, like, win the argument rather than understand one another's perspectives. But I, I think there have, there actually have been good, there have been social scientists who have done a good job sort of setting up public, delib- like, deliberative fora with citizens where people actually explore these issues in a way that is nuanced and thoughtful and they listen to each other. So it's, uh, the issues you're describing are a challenge, but I still think it's possible to to create for a, for broader, you know, and more sincere discussion. And I guess, you know, a particular concern, like going back to sort of the global North, global South thing is that like the limited amount of social science research that's been done suggests that, at least some folks in climate vulnerable countries and communities aren't categorically opposed to geoengineering research or even to, you know, considering the prospect of utilizing geoengineering in the future. But they're worried about the power dynamics. They're worried about whether, you know, their region, their country, their community is going to have agency in the decision-making process and so on. So I think what I'm suggesting is that as we move forward, having a sort of broad space of discourse can enable people to raise those kinds of concerns in ways that enable them to be better addressed, right? So how could solar geoengineering research be governed in such a way to perhaps mitigate the disparities in research capacity or other capacities that you described you know, earlier, how might it be the case that models be developed that are sensitive to, you know, the kinds of variables that matter to people in particular parts of the world, 
that might not be as salient to researchers in North America, say. Those are the kind of things that I think an you know attention to recognitional and participatory justice can add to the conversation. Are there other bits of justice that we've not yet covered? Because I picked the ones that I'm aware that mi missed off, but are there other types of justice that, um, I mean, that we, you've discussed in your yeah. paper or you think are relevant that we just haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I mean, kind of like, you know, as with legitimacy, there are so many different concepts of justice that would be, you know, we'd have to spend a long time trying to like unpack and enumerate them all. I mean, I think other dimensions of in the paper, I focus on distributive, participatory and recognitional justice. I There's, I think, other dimensions. Of so justice. let me just recap that. So distributive is who gets what. Yeah. Participatory is who gets to speak. And recognitional is about the consideration and permission of different value systems and cultures associated with those value systems within the process. Yeah, I think that's right. Is that right? That in sort of equally an equally short phrase, it could be, you know, participatory justice is who gets to speak and and recognitional justice is sort of who gets heard. Because it's one thing to speak and it's another thing to be heard. Okay. Uh, I think what you're talking about there is heard in a very, in a much more kind of um, metaphorical way right rather than a yeah. more specific and direct way yeah i mean it could, okay. be, it could be that right it could be it could be literal like if every time i speak somebody talk you know if i'm the only woman in the room say and every time i speak up somebody talks over me or my you know that would be like i might literally not be heard but there's all yes metaphorically is kind of the the broader sense in which i mean it like whose whose views get uptake you know what kinds of space is yeah it? expression if your views it's all very well to be able to express your views but if the whole basis on which you're expressing those views describe no weight then you might as well have not expressed them in the first place so a lack of recognition of justice undermines procedural justice right yes exactly okay fine so you've given us three useful concepts of justice there which i'm sure people will try and apply to their later work and thinking you you give me i mean uh, if i could boldly praise you what you're saying is that um you're concerned that a limited and uh, rigid moral conception and worldview amongst people who are most noted for their hard science work and step into um, more social science or uh, related areas has led to a situation where they they kind of don't understand why other people don't like them and what they do because to them it seems completely illogical but yet yeah, there is a very good reason that they're entirely unaware of that. That that would appear to be a, a rough pricey of your your arguments, right? Yeah, I think there's. Or do I misunderstand a, you? No, I no, I think that. I mean, I think that that is a reasonable characterization. I think that there's a risk um, without sort of careful attention to the way in which research goes forward and is sort of governed and institutionalized that some views that that will sort of rush too quickly into sort of narrow ways of thinking about how to evaluate solar geoengineering without making space for consideration of a broader range of values and views and worldviews. And I think actually opening up space early in the process uh, can actually shape the trajectories of research in ways that generate 
more knowledge that is more responsive to a wide range of values rather than sort of focusing on a narrower range of values. Like what's the cheapest way, you know, to lower the temperature by, you know, a quarter of a degree C or something like that. Okay. So I get what you're saying in that you are saying a lot of the geoengineering advocates have got a framework for evaluating the world and evaluating decisions that is not shared and they don't really understand why people don't share their worldview because I mean engineers are notorious for not really understanding the subtleties of other people's worldviews which is why sadly so many terrorists engineers because they have got rigid moral rigid social conception and one that often lacks subtlety based on my own personal experience both being and spending much of my life around engineers i can quite see how people who who are of that bent get drawn into extremist and rigid ideologies because they want a satisfying framework this is useful for understanding and explaining human interactions and social concepts as is the laws of newton or faraday for dealing with physical phenomena and becomes it's very difficult to provide that kind of certainty in in, in the messy world of human factors right um yeah. So, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting that anybody that we've named is prone to extremist or, or terrorist ideology. There's a spectrum, and I was pointing very much at one extreme end of that spectrum rather than trying to tie all engineers with the same brush. But, um, you, know, it's, you know, it's no laughing matter. I don't want to provide fuel for uh, other people's unfair criticisms. So, you know, we're all about depth and nuance on this podcast. That's why we spend an hour discussing the papers that we talk about. So I certainly don't want people to come away with the impression that I'm making out every single engineer is entirely unable to consider other people's worldview. It's just a, a, a somewhat glib identification of the shortcomings of a, of a community, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I, uh, I guess I'd also say, you know, I mean, there may be some communities that are sort of, and some, you know, institutional structures of various communities that uh, sort of encourage you know, less breadth in, in thinking, but I don't really want to make, I don't want to act like, you know, as the philosopher, like I have this, you know, broad view, like all of us have limitations on our thinking and limitations in our views. And so, and all of us have unexamined assumptions that we operate with. So I think part of the goal is to kind of open up conversations. So, you know, in talking with you or in talking with, you know, somebody from another part of the world who's working in another field or has a different kind of experience that I can realize like, oh, I, I didn't even notice that I was making that assumption. Thank you for pointing that out. Right. And I, I, but, I but what you're it's... doing overall, what you're, what you're doing overall is, is criticizing the sort of tech bro approach to problem solving, right? Where they view inherently kind of top-down technologically driven mechanistic solutions as being the best way to approach human problems now they're they're quite widely derided and quite rightly so and you know there's always a grain of truth to these kind of criticisms where people are quite legitimately criticized for having this um uh, rather socially boneheaded approach to everything from nuclear power to vaccines or whatever and not appreciating things like value systems that collide with those tech solutions um want to sort of keep things reasonably uh, sensibly on track here so have we have we got a clear understanding of what the the issues that you've raised in your paper are because i'd like to draw you on two yeah. things if i may before wrapping up but firstly i'd like to understand what this work leads you to believe not necessarily in the paper but 
you know what what this leads you to believe about what should be done instead of instead of just throwing eggs at yeah. David Keith's paper. It'd be interesting to see how you think that these concepts could be more usefully applied and what we might learn from that application process in terms of guiding whether we do or don't experiment and how we do or don't experiment. It's all very well to say that we've got these highfalutin concepts of justice that we'd like to see more widely implemented. But what does that mean I'm doing on Tuesday next week? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess one thing I'd say is that I feel since I, you know, I wrote the paper a number of years ago and I've been encouraged generally about the direction that conversations have gone since then. I don't necessarily any kind of cause strong or even weak causal relationship between my writing this paper and and things going in a direction that I'm happy to see. But, you know, I think like the National Academies process was very interdisciplinary. It incorporated a lot of different perspectives. Do you want to talk about that? Were you doing a solid geoengineering National Academies one? Yes, I was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, what was it like? I mean, were you, I mean, I, I know a bit about it and it was quite an influential report that they wrote, but what was it like to be in the bear i mean was it was it you know two days in a resort or was it you know loads of sweaty late night zoom sessions or what are you doing and how did it all work out not a lot of resort time i'm afraid (laughs) but yeah i don't want to mock that sort of stuff i mean i actually find the um you know the the get-togethers in what are often resorts you know because they you know normally we go off season to these places but you know, you do often end up in resorts, but I find them hugely valuable. I don't go on holidays. I don't have any desire to go to resorts when I'm not working. But I find uh, isolation amongst colleagues is, you know, you get a lot more, um, you thought you, there's a lot more melding mm-hmm. of a community that happens when you're physically isolated from the outside world, right? Yeah. Um, so you know, I don't want to, I don't want people to listen to this and think, oh, you know, scientists are all flying around the world on jollies because, yeah, I do enjoy my work. I'm, but I do it because I think it's valuable. You know, I don't take holidays when I don't need to, but I do go to conferences because I feel that, you know, and I can point very specifically, like, for example, we went to Beijing to a conference and I think I've got three papers or so directly out of that work that I probably would never have done if it wasn't for the opportunity to really kind of spend a lot of time in the company of colleagues who who might otherwise not have um, crossed my path in a way that made me force myself look at views and interact with them in a way that I might not otherwise have done. It's a good opportunity to hang out with your enemies and get drunk, right? Yeah. Um, so how did it actually work in practical terms with this, the, the NASIM? I mean, we spent, we did spend a lot of time. I mean, we were fortunate that the process began before COVID. So it sort of ended during COVID, but we were able to have a number of in-person meetings, including meetings where outside, you know, experts came and spoke with the committee and presented their perspectives and ideas. Uh, We spent a lot of time deliberating, a lot of time collaboratively writing. And I think, yeah, I mean, I felt it was a great learning experience in terms of hearing from, you know, we had people with expertise in many different areas on the committee, you know, atmospheric scientists, climate modelers, you know, legal scholars, policy experts, social scientists, uh, you know, engineers. <laughs> so really running people with more sort of, eco, you know, ecological, biological uh, expertise. So I just felt like that was, a, you know, a really helpful way to think about this multidimensional problem and that 
from my perspective, people did, you know, we worked, it's a challenging issue, but we worked well together to develop uh, ideas that I think consider, you know, what's important, what might be important in terms of priorities going forward with solar geoengineering research, and also what might be important in terms of some possible governance approaches. So I found that a really positive experience. And I think also I've been involved with other efforts, like there's a effort, well, I'm sure you you know, know out of NCAR, uh, the, like the Community Climate Intervention Strategies uh, Program, where they also have really engaged a wide variety of people coming at this issue from multiple directions. Um, it's also the case that AGU, American Geophysical Union, working on this issue and you know is also trying to get many different voices i mean there there are more there are ongoing initiatives to like the degrees initiative to involve and build capacity among people from and scientists from the global south so i think actually things are i'm encouraged about sort of the broadening because i think you know there has been historically short history but you know historically a sort of concentration of research among a small number of research groups in uh, wealthy countries and wealthy universities. And that still, I think, is the case. But I think there is an effort to really to start expanding the conversation in ways that I think will be beneficial and salutary. Okay. So do you think um, the report that came out of that NASA workshop was, were you happy with it? Or do you think that it wasn't a you know appropriately scoped or appropriately executed report? How did you feel having participated in it? I mean, as I said, I thought the process was good, and I think the report. It doesn't mean the outcomes were good, though. Yeah, um, <laughs> I also think I'm also I also think the outcome was good. I mean, I think that you know, you know, we have like a 16 member committee, and obviously each of us has our own individual perspectives and and when you're writing a consensus report you have to think about how to like how to bring together those diverse perspectives into some sort of core ideas that everyone can agree on but i think um the report was successful in doing that and i think offered some helpful frameworks for approaching um approaching research and governance in this area going forward and what what was the skill mix on that NASM committee? Was it, uh, you know, was it sort of fifty fifty social science and hard science, or or what? That's a good quote. I'm not sure. I wouldn't say it was fifty fifty. I mean, I'm not looking for a head count. I'm just. Yeah. You know, was it was it dominated by physical scientists, or was it? You know, how, how did you feel? I felt like there was actually a good balance. I mean, it'd be interesting, you know, to ask, you know, to ask others on the committee, whether, whether they agreed, but I think um, the, there was a, there was a, a lot of expertise from the natural, you know, sciences. We also had economists, you know, people who, but also a really good mix that I think was effectively complementary. Uh, so, and I think one thing that was, I appreciated is that I felt like the, it didn't feel like a natural science committee with a sort of small, you know, a sprinkling of token philosophers. Yes, right? exactly. 
It didn't feel like that. Okay. It felt okay. like it felt like I mean others others could speak, you know, to their own experience, but I felt like everyone's perspectives, everyone's expertise, everyone's contributions were valued. And so that which isn't to say that people never disagreed with one another, you know, obviously. There's no point if people don't disagree, then there's no point having them in the room, is there? Because you're not going to let everything you can exactly. just sit and brain everything, right? Um, so um, in terms of, you know, future plans and prospects for both your research and your kind of committee contributions and stuff like that, is there anything you'd like to mention? Or, you know, have you just got, is there just nothing interesting coming up that you want to talk about? Um, I mean... <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I'm about to head next week to a conference at Harvard. Yeah, I'd like to go to that, but annoyingly, I didn't. They don't have a poster session, and so I can't get funding to travel. They haven't got funding to anybody there, and my university won't fund me unless I'm presenting something. Uh, as, as a note to anybody hosting a conference, policies vary from university to university. But all you need to do to have a poster session is just put up a couple of boards and say, "We've got a poster session." Now, I don't necessarily say that, you know, everybody's in my position, but if I can present a poster, I can get my travel funded, in, right. you know, in many cases. I'm not saying every case, but yeah. you know, broadly speaking, if I'm presenting something, I can get funded. And it's just very frustrating to have a conference where I've never I've never been to a conference where I thought, oh, you know, this would have been a lot better if they didn't have a poster session. I really wish they got rid of the poster session. Right. So I don't I don't ever think it's really intrusive or it harms the conference because it's a poster session. You don't want to go to it. You just don't go to it. Right. Um, but it enables a lot of people who otherwise might be excluded from the conference to come and get their travel funded and, and, and go and speak there. So unfortunately, I do not think I'm going to be able to go to that Harvard conference much as I'd like to go. And it's very sad because I've been to several conferences in that area before and they were, you know, useful and enjoyable and they get a good crowd. But that crowd, unfortunately, will not include me. Or unfortunately for me, will not include me. It might be fortunate for other people, but we'll see if that's the case. And I, I will, um, unless it's recorded, and that's the one saving grace, I can go and log in to the recording after the event. Yeah, they, they have it live streamed, which is really bizarre. So you can't ask questions or anything like that, but you can log in and see what you missed out on. Um, which is yeah, kind of okay to a point, but not brilliant. Um, and um, I will look forward to seeing what you discussed there and, and feel a bit, I'm going to get a bit of FOMO about that and be a bit sad that I couldn't go, but uh, that is unfortunately just the way the cookie crumbles, really. So um, other than your Fancy Pants conference that I'm not allowed to go to, is there anything else that you want to discuss about your kind of future of uh, research plans or whatnot? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I'm on a panel on solar geoengineering and intergenerational justice, which is a dimension of justice we haven't really talked about. Um, well, we were talking about that last time. Funny as you mentioned that, we, we had a long conversation about about that last time um, with the podcast. And I was having a moan because I thought it was particularly stupid that people go on about intergenerational justice. But then when people talk about long-termism, which is the kind of right-wing version of intergenerational justice. They act like the devil's just burst into the room when they're basically talking about something which is, you know, fundamentally fairly similar. I understand there are some minor differences about how priorities are set, but right. it's not hugely important, the differences. Uh, so, yeah, I would refer our listeners back to our previous podcast where we dealt extensively with the idea of intergenerational justice. Um, um, I'm trying to think who the guest was on that, but the name escapes me right now, but it will be... It might come to me in the next couple of minutes, but I'm not going to sit there and try and recall a name at the moment. 
So if that wraps up everything you want to say about your future plans, a note to other people, and it wraps up consideration of the paper, then I think I might go and play with your friends. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Okay, uh, on the way out, just want to point out I'm rejecting your paper, just in case you thought you got away with it. Oh, I thought... Well, I thanks thought, for coming up. I thought I was going to No, I'm just... I'm just I'm not going to give you a reason. I'm just feeling capricious and spiteful. I think if, I, if you're going to push me, the reason is you're going to get to go to the conference that I want to go to. And I'm going to, in, in true petty academia, I'm going to use my privileged position to reject your paper on no other grounds than personal spite and jealousy. And frankly, I think that's as good a reason as any. And on that note, I will wrap up and uh, leave you to your day. Thanks right. very much for coming on. Yeah, thank you.